Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Martin, CEO and co-founder of Insurly, an open insurance platform that's raised 22 million euros in funding. Martin, thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, Brett. Nice to meet you today. Yeah, you as well. And thanks again. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick high-level summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. I'm Martin. I'm, I've spent uh, basically my whole career in the insurance industry. Uh, it's almost 10 years now. Time flies when you're spending time in such a fun topic of insurance. I do live in Stockholm, where we have our headquarters. And actually, for four years ago, I founded Insurly with my three co-founders. We kind of founded that on the backbone of the customer frustration in the insurance industry, but also, you know, there's a tech legacy in the insurance industry that needs to be fixed. You know, earlier in my career, I worked as a management consultant. I did work as an early employee in a startup here in, in, in Holland. So I, I've seen most of it in the insurance industry, and I'm, I'm happy to kind of transform it as well. And I was doing research before the interview and watched a YouTube video of you when you were at ENY with some of your colleagues. What was that experience like working at Ernst & Young? And you know, if you had to choose like one big takeaway from your time there, what would it be? I think that time was a great school for me to learn how to you know, speak and interact with different stakeholders and actually learn how insurance companies, banks and other financial services actually approach different problems in different layers. I think, you know, there is the strategic part of a problem, which I was heavily involved in, but it's also kind of a disconnect between the strategic layer, like a management group to the actual people doing the solution of the problem. And since I've been previously working in both operations and also like in the management, I have this kind of ability to switch from speaking with people in operations and the management and getting them to understand each other. So I think it was quite interesting because you saw a lot of issues, you saw a lot of miscommunications, you saw a lot of industry failures and you saw a lot of solutions as well and i think that was um, it was a great school and you got a lot of inspiration to be honest it's almost like being an entrepreneur but with a big brand big salary to be honest <laughs> without the pressure of having a budget and a pnl and actually risking losing your job if you don't deliver so it's really the same thing but different right <laughs> yeah i love that now talk to me about march 2019 so that's when you left and, and founded your own company what was going through your head at that time? And what were those conversations like with your you know, friends, family, and colleagues? Were they thinking, you know, Martin's lost it, he's crazy? Or were they just expecting this would eventually happen? And you know, everyone kind of knew that you were eventually going to start your own company? Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I think that, you know, from a professional point of view, I and my co-founders saw that, again, there is a lot of consumer issues in the insurance industry. We saw that consumers are not aware of their insurance policies. They don't know what they're paying for, and they actually don't know their renewal date. And I, I must admit, to this day, I don't know my renewal dates on my insurance policies. And I guess you don't do that either, <laughs> or, or that's the qualified guess, because no one knows it. So the idea actually started by us founders asking our friends and family, do you know anything about, anything about your insurance policies? And, and we had a little bit of obsession of you know, the consumer interaction with their insurance companies. And maybe that was perceived as quite strange, to be honest. And I guess people ask me, you know, why are you so curious about my insurance letters that I get every year from my employer, for example? But, you know, what we really wanted to distill was to get the answer that we essentially got. You know, I have no idea what I'm paying for. 
I don't know how to use my insurance policy. And I, I had no, absolutely no idea if I have the right protection for my family. So a little bit of obsession in the insurance industry. However, if you ask my friends and family, if they ever saw me being an, an entrepreneur, they would say, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, even since my first job in, in Holland, where I worked as employee number, I think it was number four in a startup, I really got bitten by the idea of the kind of, you know, lean startup and build, test, learn and find out users, speak with investors and board members and do everything. And it's, I really like that kind of path. And I think, you know, the, the EY experience was just a, a stepping stone to get there and, and, and do another school, to be honest. And a couple of other questions that we'd like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? You know, this is a question I get a lot of times and I never have a good answer. I actually don't admire any specific founder or CEO. It's not like personal cult to me, but I can tell you what kind of personalities I do admire at a CEO or a co-founder. It's more about people who do what it takes are not the most important thing for them is not to be seen or visible or scale the company as fast as possible. I admire the people that, you know, have that grit and make the things work and actually work for their consumers, for example, not the ones that are seen in newspapers or raise the most capitals, the ones that are actually fighting in the more silent terms, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I love that. What about books? Are there any specific books that have had a major impact on you as a founder? Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, reflecting on my first job again, the the founders of that company told me that, you know, your first job here is to read the book Lean Startup. And <laughs> they said, and I said, is this a joke? They're like, no, no, you need to. They were kind of practicing that very, very harsh, to be honest. And I think that book made a, a lot of impact on me. I literally got one day to read it. So I read a summary online. <laughs> and and I guess, you know, I kind of got that build test learn, but they actually lived that philosophy quite well, and I learned a lot of that and that impacted me in my kind of way of solving problems more quickly. And it has helped me a lot in my career. So maybe a generic choice that actually that book um, started my whole startup uh, career. Yeah, we hear that book quite often, but it's such a good book. So it's a, it's a fair call out. Now let's switch gears here a little bit and let's dive into the company. So we call this the elevator pitch. So it's, you know, the high level pitch on the problem you solve, who you're solving it for, and, and really what that product does. So can you share with us that information? Yeah, sure. So, you know, working as a management consultant in the insurance industry for a couple of years, we saw that the industry has two problems. One being, you know, the insurance industry has a lot of tech legacy and fails to deliver solutions that fits the market and the consumer. So the consumers are quite dissatisfied. The other problem that I spoke about before was that consumers are quite unaware about their insurance policies and if they have the right protection. So there is a huge information gap in the insurance industry, not benefiting anyone in the industry, to be honest. And during that time, back in 2018, 2019, we saw the open banking companies here in, in Sweden, where we, we started, the Tink, the Klarna, the Trustlist, et cetera, and being quite successful on the backbone of the, of the regulatory framework of open banking in Europe. So we thought that maybe data sharing in the insurance industry and the financial services industry with outside of the payments is something to build on. So we kind of quickly in 2000, I think it was 2018, we built our B2C app, um, actually started as a B2C company where consumers could get an insurance overview or insurance wallet app basically from us. They could actually connect to any insurance carrier out there. They could download their policies in real time uh, within five or 10 seconds per carrier. We could help them to understand their insurance policies. And that went so well. And um, we got a lot of users, had a super low acquisition cost. 
And we saw that we're probably solving one of the two problems that we had. The consumers are getting more informed, and that's still our vision. However, after a while, we realized that the B2C model is quite difficult to, to get with positive ROI and positive metrics. We saw that in order to scale this model and make enough revenue to actually finance ourselves or we're actually growing revenue at all, we saw that we need partnerships with the insurance industry for the distribution side. We need to pour in a lot of money in marketing and PR, and we didn't have that funding. So after a while, we got some inbounds from the insurance and banking industry saying that, you know, this tech that you have built to get real-time user policy data. That's very interesting for us since we have the brands, we have the distribution networks, we have the consumer already. Could we license this as a source model? At first we said, you know, not at all. We want to be the independent champion for the consumer good. And then we realized that maybe this is a quicker way to realize our vision to make the consumers more empowered and more uh, informed when making choices about their financial well-being. So we pivoted the company to be a B2B company, and now we're selling solutions to get real-time data about your consumers, um, insurance policies, like PNC, but also pension and savings. So as an insurance company, bank, or asset manager, you can access your end consumers' personal data around those products. So making pivots is always difficult, and that's something that I think every founder obviously struggles with. So was that hard to make that decision to go from B to C to, to B to B? And what helped you really make that decision and, and ensure that it was done quickly? It was very hard. I think both our investors, ourselves, and you know, we had that very visionary view of what we wanted to create, something else and something new in the insurance industry. But it was actually when we realized that, you know, this will be a mean to fulfill our vision rather than be something else in our vision. We saw that now we can actually leverage the insurance industry and the, the asset management and pension industries ability to attract customers with their brand to increase the probability to fulfill our vision. That was the kind of defining moment when we realized that over a couple of years, me and the other founders. So before that, we were quite skeptical and we said, you know, is it really worth it to have a company if you have to compromise on anything? And we realized that we don't have to compromise. We can actually do this two things at once. So I think that was the kind of defining moment to the pivot, but it was difficult. Yes. And did you already have investors at that point in the company? We did have some early angel investors, uh, quite early actually before uh, when the company was just a paper product and we had the kind of first hundred lines of code. We did have angel investors, which were successful entrepreneurs here in, in Sweden. And they helped us with a small amount of cash. And I think what they helped us with the most was experience and actually pushing us to making this work and actually pushing to, you know, you need to get a first pay customer. You need to make this work for a small segment. You don't have to build everything. It doesn't have to be perfect. Since they've done that kind of journey, they helped us a lot to do the right compromises and invest in the right things, even though we didn't have that much of capital, like, for example, the, the, the U.S. Silicon Valley angel funds is probably a little bit larger than the Swedish ones, for example. And did you have any investors who pushed back on the idea of moving to a B2B business model, or did everyone just understand it and, and really get why you needed to make that change? I think quite the opposite, to be honest. I think everyone saw that, you know, capital is running out, we are getting some traction in the market. You know, if you're in a few months, get tens of thousands of users uh, with a small budget, you're doing something right. And you get comments, you know, over email saying that this is the best service that I've ever seen. And if you, you're solving a problem, right? And all investors saw that, but they all pushed us to say, you know, you need to come up with ideas how to capitalize on this. And so I think they actually helped us in that direction as well. 
I think, however, I think the investors and ourselves, we were quite, maybe we overestimated the ability to pay. I think our pay for our, our first services, which were quite low quality, low scope. We were not a kind of an enterprise grade company as we are today. So I think our first offering was uh, 10 times what we actually got in our first contract, which was kind of a learning as well. Now that contract is obviously more worth than in the beginning, but also, you know, this kind of quality towards delivery was one very important learning in that journey. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And then as you went down that path of a B2B product, Talk to us about those first paying customers. Uh, what was that like and, and how'd you acquire them? That's obviously something that all founders struggle with is, you know, how do you get these big logos to trust you when you're you're just a startup with a, a bold vision and a big idea? Yeah, I think you, you need to find similar profiles in your first customers, right? So, you know, the first reason that we found our first customers was that we had a B2C app and our first B2B customers were personally customers in our B2C app as well. So they saw how things were working. They saw how good we were at execution on a quite limited scope, of course. So they actually were inbound our first few uh, discussions that we had. And one of them was a, a mid-sized insurance company in Sweden and the CEO there, she uh, had been an entrepreneur for 15 years ago herself, being having funding from the top Swedish VCs, uh, for example. So she was very into yeah, kind of, I want to transform the industry. I found you, you're four people. I know that, but it's you know, I really want to work with you. And that uh, company was way too big for us to have as a first customer, but they eventually signed. They helped us to do a lot of, you know, IT security cleanup, you know, all these kind of penetration tests. And they set a lot of kind of the right requirements on us, being able to scale even faster afterwards. So we have her to thank for a lot of kind of business development. How should an offer look like? What do insurance companies and banks want to buy? The second company that we signed at the same time also was an inbound from a Swedish tech company, basically uh, being an MGA and selling insurance product. And they were super small and they actually, they were in the business of, we want to do the best for our consumers. We really want to try new things. And I think, you know, our first fee to them was maybe like $200 per month. So it's almost for free because they didn't have any ability to pay and we didn't have any ability to deliver. That has obviously increased significantly since, but I think that's the kind of investments you need to do, like get into our, your customers' needs and wants and issues and actually co-create with them. Uh, that's how we succeeded to, to create the product market fit where we are today. And what about market category? What's your view been there? You know, what is your market category and are you creating a new one or is it transforming and reimagining an existing market category? We're obviously in somewhere in tech or fintech, but I, we've, <laughs> I've been actually struggling with that question a little bit. Um, and I do think we are first movers in the open finance space, and we are creating a new category in that sense. We are building something new when it comes to data sharing for the insurance and pension and banking industry, which hasn't been seen before. I know there is a few US companies trying to do this as well. However, in Europe, we are the first movers and the only players so far doing that. I think investors and their likes has difficulties finding a label and, and they kind of where to put us. It's been difficult. So uh, yes, I think we are uh, creating a new category of open finance companies. 
which will be fueled by the new open finance legislation that comes out on the EU side here in the end of June. And can you talk us through that and what's coming in June? Sure. So if you take it from the start, I think the, the European Union has a vision of, in, in the long term, have a common data space for the European Union where companies and consumers can share data more freely to unlock a lot of innovation and to create like trust in the markets of data sharing. I think GDPR was a great example of that, where you constituted the right to data, right to data portability, etc., and kind of data protection legislation. That was a great foundation. However, and now there's been framework legislations about, you know, how can we share data in secure ways? What is the data intermediary, etc.? I think the first sector-specific uh, data sharing and uh, regulatory model you look at is finance, because finance is such a big piece of your life. So the European Commission, which is the body actually writing the legislation or proposing legislation, are currently writing an open finance framework, which means it will be required from the insurance industry, the pension industry, the banks to share basically all available data over APIs, not just payments data, which was the, the, the case with PSD2, which was the kind of embryo to start tried data sharing in the European Union. So there is kind of a great incitement from the EU to start with data sharing. Financial services is one piece of that. We will probably and hopefully see a legislation proposal here in the end of June by the European Commission. I'm quite involved in that myself. I'm traveling to Brussels uh, every now and then to meet and educate the, the legislators how this could look like in practice. Because again, we were the only practical use case of this technology so far. And we do have millions of users every year that use our services, uh, European citizens. So we need some regulation to create that kind of trust in the market. There will be a few years of negotiations in the European Parliament in order to kind of finalize the details. How should that look like? Which data should be shared, etc.? But I guess in like five years, we will have something, uh, have strict requirements on insurance companies, banks, and asset managers to actually share data over APIs in real time. If the consumer gives their consent to do so, of course, then there will be requirements how to use this data responsibly, et cetera. But I think this is one piece of the plan in the EU to create a lot more innovation. When we look at growth, are there any numbers or metrics that you can share that just highlight some of the traction and adoption that you're seeing today? Absolutely. I mean, I think what I'm looking for when it comes to fulfilling our vision, it's the usage of our services and how many, you know, how many people in all our markets are actually using our, um, using our services. I think we've been kind of doing 5x at least every year on that. And I think so far, I think, or even last year, 1 million customers only in Sweden used our solution, which is basically 10% of the population. But we are never like seen in our implementations. We're always quite label or API based. So not a lot of people maybe know that they have interacted with us. But I think that's an impressive number. And if you this year scale that into our seven different markets that we're in, while some of them are even considerably larger than Sweden, it gets to a point where you actually can see the fulfillment of your vision. A lot of people collecting their data, sharing it with new actors, they can actually compare and take better decisions. That's the kind of KPIs that drives us going, to be honest. On the backside of that, we are also charging for our services, and we do have an average growth of our contracted ARR with over 300% per year. And I think, you know, we have succeeded in attracting both the insure tech startups and the fintech startups that is building kind of innovative solutions. Obviously, the, the ACVs of those customers are quite low. We were also attracted the incumbents, you know, the large retail banks in Europe, et cetera, and very well-known names. So I think, you know, it's uh, 
we're getting there. And I think the most important thing for me is not, <laughs> might sound counterintuitive, the most important thing for me is not to increase our contracted ARR as much as possible. The most important to me long-term is to have as many people as possible using our services in as many markets as possible. That will lead to market dominance and that will lead to a high uh, ARR at the end. And obviously there's a lot of noise in the insure tech space. What do you think you've gotten right and how are you able to rise above that noise and, and acquire customers like that? That's a great question because uh, I've seen the kind of rise and fall to some extent of the insure tech industry or the changes perhaps in the insure tech industry. So I think the past five years where capital well, or 10 years where capital was quite cheap, a lot of tech companies saw that these market failures between consumers, they're not informed, consumers in newer generations want more digital services, etc. They saw that opportunity and they created this kind of neo-insurance distributions. You know, startups where you would be an insurance broker, you would sell one or two products and you will do that quite digitally and everything will be, in theory, very efficient. Uh, we've seen a lot of those companies appearing in Europe. And I think over the last five years, they have been quite successful. But that's on the backbone that their capital has been quite cheap. So they could actually undercut prices using VC capital to gain market share in price-sensitive segments. And those were first movers of our tech as well, because we're building enablers to the insurance uh, industry, for example. We're helping them to lower their acquisition costs. We're helping them to solve their business problems, to retarget customers when their insurance is about to expire, for example. So they have been great champions to us. I think the last year and the kind of market turbulence that we have seen have forced those companies to think more about profitability, which has led them to raise prices on their underlying insurance products, which has led to a lot of you know consumer churn, which has led to less usage of our services for those companies, and actually more usage of our services in the incumbents where who have seen that, hang on, these new insurance companies, they did something right with the surely. Maybe we should also use their services to fast track our digitalization. So we're actually, we're kind of indifferent to who we sell to. We're selling to the new insurance companies, the small ones, the intermediaries, the asset managers, the banks, and the incumbent insurance industry, which traditionally is a quite hard segments to sell to. It takes a lot of time. I think what we have done right is targeting a broad category of companies in different sizes. And I think the second thing that we have done right is to find two commercial use cases. Every customer that we have out there are getting a positive ROI on our services because their end consumers are more happy, they stay longer, they converse better, they get more data to use in underwriting and pricing. They can do retargeting based on, again, based on renewal dates, for example. There is so much value in, for example, insurance or pension data. You can actually use that to sell more and sell better while the consumer are getting better informed choices, they're more empowered, and they're actually more informed of what they bought, leading also to operational efficiency, such as less claims which are false, because consumers doesn't know what they had. Now they do, so they actually don't claim as much, and when they do, it's actually accurate. So I think what we have done right is to focus on the commercial side of things, actually building services that will help our customers to succeed. And final couple of questions here. Based on your journey so far, let's say that I were starting an insure tech company today, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd have for me? That's a, that's a great question. I think, do your research before starting and think about the end user and kind of the long-term profitability. 
as I said, I've seen a lot of insured tech companies, especially on the distribution side, focusing a little bit too short term. Maybe the innovation should not be just in digital services. It should also be in kind of terms and conditions. It should be in, in other parts of the value chain. And I think if you were starting kind of and in short, say without uh, outside the distribution channels, you should probably look at what is the kind of infrastructure required to fuel both the incumbents, but also the insure tech companies. I guess that's the space we're in, so I'm, I'm quite biased, but I actually think the first level of you know innovation was kind of on the front end. Now we're in a phase where we see a lot of backend and infrastructure investments in the traditional industry, but also in the insure techs. I think that's a very nice place to be if you're into kind of uh, backend tech data, et cetera. And final question here, let's zoom out into the future. So maybe three to five years from today, can you just paint a picture for what that high level vision for Insurly is? So that high level vision and target is to continue to be the, the European leader of open finance services. Hopefully we do have a regulatory framework to rely on, but even before that's enforced, we will continue on our strategy to work with the largest accounts in Europe, the largest banks, insurance companies, asset managers, and the largest fintechs in order to solidify our, our market position and be impossible to compete with. Second of all, I think, I hope that we have at least 10x uh, number of customers per year using our services. That's something I really want to happen. And I think we are live in, uh, in most European markets and potentially looking at the US as well, but we'll see. The US is another type of, uh, of challenge than, than Europe could be. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Martin, this conversation has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. If someone from our audience wants to get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to go? I think just drop an email at martin at insurely.com or just find me on LinkedIn and connect and we can have a chat. Amazing. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about what you're building and share some of those lessons that you've learned along the way. Really appreciate it and wish you best of luck. Thank you so much. And thanks for interesting questions and conversations. Yeah, no problem. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 